0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 446. It's titled, Die with Zero, Why You Should Start Spending Now. I recently finished two books that seem to resonate with the personal finance community. They have sold well. The books have been recommended to me. I've seen them on social media. The first is Die with Zero, Getting All You Can With Your Money and Your Life by Bill Perkins. The second is The Pathless Path, Imagining a New Story for Work and Life by Paul Millard. I'll admit, I was reluctant to read them. I assumed Die with Zero was about annuities, something we have covered numerous times on the show, including episode 32, which was titled Die Broke. The Pathless Path had a more appealing title, but it felt like something I've already been on for more than a decade, and I wasn't sure how helpful it would be. Both Perkins and Millard have taken unconventional paths. Perkins is in his fifties, he was a successful energy trader, he's still a hedge fund manager, a Hollywood film producer, and spends time at high stakes tournaments playing poker. Paul Millard is younger. He's in his thirties, is an independent writer, freelancer coach, is not financially independent at this point, Perkins obviously is, although he says he's not a billionaire, but it sounds like he's very wealthy because he said he was one of the most successful energy traders in history. Both books provide insights on answering this question. I'll use Perkins' phrasing of the question, what is the best way to allocate our life energy before we die? Perkins was trained as an engineer, so he sees this question as an optimization problem. How to maximize fulfillment while minimizing waste? And the problem he says we're trying to solve is total life enjoyment. It's such an optimization problem in his mind, he's developed an app. And I've not used the app, but he he talks about different experiences, can have different experience points, because he believes the goal is to maximize our fulfillment across our lifespan by having experiences. And it's it's figuring out the right balance between earning money and then spending that money on experiences. And because, in his mind, it's a complex optimization problem, that's why he developed an app. I disagree. I believe we should strive to achieve fulfillment in our life, but I don't see it as an optimization problem. When I hear the word optimization, even within investing, I tend to pull back because there's so many uncertainties. There isn't a formula to have a fulfilling life. There isn't an optimal answer. Perkins believes the way that we maximize our fulfillment is by achieving the biggest peaks we can through a combination of our time and money. And then by investing in these experiences, we'll have long-lasting memories that we can reflect on even as our health declines. And he calls this a memory dividend that essentially our experiences and memories compound over time. He's so focused on optimization that he he says he has an app on his phone that shows how many days, weeks, even hours, I suspect, until he's expected to die if he dies at his actuarial life expectancy. I find that appalling. I'm not an engineer, and that's fine that he finds that app useful. One of the things that Perkins points out, it's true, is that our health does decline over time, and that it's better to do some things that are more physically demanding when we're young. He writes, too many of us still view ourselves on an ongoing basis as being in our 20s, even though our real age is somewhere in our 50s, 60s, or even 70s. While it's admirable to view oneself as young in heart, it's also necessary to be more realistic and objective about your body and how it's aging. You have to be mindful and aware of your physical limits and how they are steadily encroaching upon you as you get older, whether you like it or not. Now, that's true. I didn't really care for his view of aging. It, was, it seemed overly pessimistic, and it, it could have been from his life experiences. But he writes, as you get older, your health declines and your interests gradually narrow. Just as your sex drive diminishes, your creativity usually declines too. And when you're extremely old and frail, no matter what your level of interest is, just about all you can do is sit and eat tapioca pudding. At that point, money is useless to you because all you need or want is to lie in bed and watch Jeopardy. That's true sometimes, particularly if someone gets dementia but not always some of my most cherished friendships today are with individuals living active fulfilling and creative lives in their 80s and their 90s they're not living off of their memory dividend they're creating new memories every day and i think that should be our goal not worry so much about we're going to age and die because we are but and i this is really the point of perkins book to make deliberate choices Deliberate choices of how we spend our money and our time, and that's how we make the most of our life energy. He suggests using time buckets, which is different from a bucket list. Time buckets are, you look at your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and which activity, sufficiently balancing the, the money we have, the free time we have, and the health, which activity would fit best in that bucket. That presumes you have a long list of things that you want to do. I don't. I've done many things already. I enjoy the journey. And I'm just not that type of planner with this list of places I want to go and things I want to do. Well, and that could be because I'm in my 50s. And so I quit my job over 11 years ago. So many of those things I've done. I recognize, for example, that there are many countries that I will never visit. I probably will never go to China or South Africa because there's other places I want to go more and I want to go back to. And and I have found, as if you've traveled in developing market countries, there's some similarities. A third world country, there's obviously some cultural differences, but there are definitely some, some similarities. The same for advanced countries. And so we don't need to see every single country in the world unless that is your goal. There's a difference, though, between making deliberate choices and maximizing, trying to maximize our fulfillment and equating maximizing fulfillment with maximizing the number of experiences that we have. There's a difference between quality over quantity. The example Perkins gives is if you have a week's worth a vacation. And maybe it's the first time you've been there and you're not sure when you're going to go back. And so you want to plan ahead, he writes, to make sure we pack in as many landmarks, tours, activities, and other experiences unique to the place we're visiting. That's a lot of time pressure when you're on vacation. I don't travel like that. Many people do. And I think it's it's the fear of missing out of not being able to go back again. We have some friends that are going to the UK or they went to the UK a month or so ago. They used London as a base, but as part of their, I think they might have been there for less than two weeks, they flew to Ireland, they flew to Scotland, they flew to France, and it felt very maximalist. But their thought was, we're bringing our kids, we want them to get a taste of a number of different places that they hopefully can return to at a later time. Leperl and I are going to the UK here in a few weeks. We'll be there three weeks. We're going to three places, London, St. Ives, and Leeds. That's it. And the amount of planning that we've done for what we're going to do in each of those places is very minimal. We have some acquaintances that we'll meet up with in St. Ives and Leeds, but we're going to let the trip evolve, the journey evolve, when we're there. Millard, in his book, quotes Lao Tzu in The Tao Te Ching. Less and less do you need to force things until finally you arrive at non-action. When nothing is done, nothing is left undone. True mastery can be gained by letting things go their own way. It can't be gained by interfering. Now, we're not saying don't do anything, but sometimes we just have to take a step back, slow down, and let it evolve. Miller also quotes John Steinbeck, the author, that wrote, if it's right, it happens. The main thing is not to hurry. Nothing good gets away. When we're so worried about we're going to die and trying to maximize the number of experiences that we have, there's a lot of time pressure in that. We find even though we're worried about dying in the future, we're even leaning into the next activity, leaning into the future, rather than stay present in what the current activity is. If, you, if we're so list-bound checking it off, getting experiences, we might miss out on the experience that we're having today. And that's what those two quotes are getting at. Just let life evolve, but still make deliberate choices. There's a balance there. We need, as Perkins says, to get off autopilot. Perhaps as part of that, we do need to make a change. Maybe we need to move. Maybe we need a different job, a different career. Maybe we need to work less so we can travel more. And those major life changes bring fear. I I know that. I wanted to quit my job as an institutional investment advisor in 2008. I was involved in a a forum that Seth Godin had put together with a lot of independent professionals that were doing things on their own. I was one of the few people that had a traditional job, but it took me three years before I eventually quit. It was a competition between the fear of the unknown, the fear of what's it gonna be like against the fear of missing out if I didn't quit and the fear of being trapped in this career and basically waiting out the clock, making more money. LaPro had something that she wanted to do in 2009 and I was fearful of that. She wanted to travel with her family for several months at a time. In, in this case, to go to Maine. And I was resistant. It sounded like kind of a hassle. What about the kids with school? And she pushed us. And we did. The kids homeschooled. They did projects. And we had the most amazing two to three months in Maine. It was life-changing. In fact, it set us up for the next year to have the courage to basically commute to Sun Valley for school for two of our kids between there and Rexburg, so we would, we would spend the weeks in Sun Valley, we'd come back to Rexburg on the weekend, and that was an amazing time. But it, we had to overcome the fear. And what are some of these fears of making a change? Millard had hundreds of conversations with people, and the fears fall into five areas. First is success. What if I'm not good enough? I remember feeling that. What if, what if I can't make money on my own? Nobody will hire me. The second is money. What, what if I go broke? Health. What if I get sick? Belonging? Will I still be loved? Will anybody care if I quit my job and go out on my own? And I'm not, I don't have this title anymore as an institutional money manager. Don't have a following. I just, just me. What about happiness? What if I'm not happy? Those are, are very big fears. And Millard shares an exercise that Tim Ferriss recommends of six steps. First, write down the change you're, you're, you're making, and then List out, in step two, all the worst possible outcomes. Step three is to identify actions you could take to to mitigate those bad outcomes. Four is list some steps or actions you could take to get back to where you are today. If you flat out fail, what could you take in order to regain your footing to where you were? Step five is to list out some benefits of the attempt. If it doesn't work, if it fails, what would be some of the benefits? What would you learn? Or if it was partially successful, what would you gain from that? And then the sixth step is, what is the cost of inaction in three months, 12 months, or in a, in a few years? So there's, there's concrete steps we can take to overcome the fear if we feel compelled to make the change. And if, if you, like I was, fear of making the change versus fear of missing out from not making the change. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H dot slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. For me, the most motivating part of the book that really caused me to reflect, this was Perkins' book on Die With Zero, is he shared some stats of how little retirees spend of their retirement funds? after they retire. Retirees that have more than $500,000 in savings when they retire spent only 12% of that nest egg by the time they died or in the first 20 years. So very, very small. One third of all retirees actually increased their assets after retirement. Their nest egg kept growing. Surprisingly, Individuals with pensions that had that guaranteed income source so then actually could spend their nest egg only spent about 4% of their assets down in the first 18 years of retirement compared to those that didn't have a pension spent about a third in the first 18 years of retirement. And why is that? Well, it's the fear of running out of money. It's a big fear. And it's also just being used to spending only what we receive in income because that's what we did throughout our working lives. In fact, we spent less than what we received in income, because we were saving. So the idea of spending more and actually drawing down the retirement pool, the nest egg, is indeed terrifying. Perkins points out that in order to die with zero, we're going to hit peak net worth much sooner than we think. In fact, as they've done a number of iterations, they think that age is between 45 and 60. As I thought about that, I realized, yeah, I've probably already hit my peak net worth. I quit my job when I was 46. If I count the receivable that my company owed me, that they paid out over seven years, that was effectively my peak net worth. I have not saved any money in over a decade if we're talking about actually spending less than I received in income. That's taken some adjustment, and I I just sort of just realized that. But the idea that we're at our peak net worth can be sobering to some extent. I always thought, well, maybe I should save more or grow my net worth. But part of it's just, it's competitive. Why do billionaires keep trying to make more money? Because they want to be bigger billionaires. There's a competition. Money is used to keep score. There's this desire for more, not because we can spend it, because it's very, very difficult to spend a billion dollars. It can be difficult to spend a hundred million dollars. And so the idea of of continuing to try to grow our net worth to keep score, what does that cost us in terms of our time, in terms of our health, in terms of experiences that we give up? What is the cost of trying to continue to make more and more and more to the planet? At some point, we, just, we have to start spending. One of the exercises that I have done recently is on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, our, our membership community, we have two online calculators. And there's also a number of spreadsheets to help figure out the expected return of our assets or to, to categorize them. But these online calculators, one's a retirement savings calculator to help you figure out how big will your nest egg grow using different assumptions. But the second is a retirement spending calculator. Here's what I did to sort of dial in how much should I be spending of my nest egg. So I excluded my individual retirement account, which I have not added to in over a decade. So it just grows based on the investment returns. I'm not drawing down on it, but my thought is at some point at age 70 or later, I'll use it to purchase an immediate annuity so that I have a guaranteed income source to complement Social Security, which I'll take presumably around age 70. Not that I'm planning on on retiring, but still, sort of long-term plan. Those are guaranteed income sources. Then I excluded our primary residence in Tucson. I excluded the value of our cabin in Idaho, and that gave me a balance. Our taxable investments, which are highly diversified between public securities and private investments, include speculation like gold and cryptocurrency, private capital, public stocks, preferred stocks, REITs, just a large variety. And I put that into this retirement calculator, and I assumed that annual inflation rate was 2.6%, that the annual return was conservative at at 5.3%. And then I backed into the spending rate of that taxable nest egg. That would last 39 years. So until I'm in my mid-90s. And it's a 4% spending rate. And then it shows, well, how much is that? Should I be spending from that taxable nest egg each year? And that amount gets increased by the rate of inflation. And we'll spend that amount this year. And there's been times in, in the past few years where we've spent more of that out of our investments and some where we've spent less. But that's an annual exercise I'll do. We'll see what the returns were in that particular year, what the balance is of that taxable nest egg, and how much do we need to spend out of it so that that taxable nest egg is at zero in our mid-90s. Going through that exercise helped me certainly to put the numbers together, but to understand how does this nest egg equate to annual spending from it. And I still have a margin of safety because we have the the IRA that could be rolled over to an annuity, we have the equity in the homes. But it's a start because it is a challenge to start spending. And some of that spending can be giving money away to people in need. It could be instead of waiting until we die to pass on an inheritance to our children to give them some of that now. We did that recently because I gave my two sons 25% of our family business. So recognize that many of us probably have hit our peak net worth and we need to start thinking about how we're going to spend that down, even perhaps before we hit traditional retirement age. And Perkins points out, maybe you like your job. Maybe you enjoy what you're doing. Maybe you still make a bunch of money in a job that you find fulfilling. And he says, that's great, but still go through the math to figure out how much you need to spend and give away from that. So you die with zero with the whole idea that if there's money left that hasn't been given away to others or spent, that that is life energy that was expended earning those sums that could have led to more fulfilling experiences. What? I found missing from the Die With Zero book, and maybe it was because it was so focused on optimization, was the importance of relationships and the time that it takes to build those relationships. One of the biggest risks for the elderly is loneliness because they don't have friends. And and something I certainly have thought about as we've settled in Tucson and have had this cabin in Idaho at this location for six years now is keep investing in our relationships, make time for friends, invite people over. It can take years, if not decades, to build those strong relationships that will last into our 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that could mean staying much of the time in one place to build that out. The second aspect is, rather than maximizing the number of experiences, if there's something that we truly enjoy... Just the satisfaction of building that craft over time, year in and year out, getting better at it. There was a recent interview with the CNN anchor, Anderson Cooper. The interviewer was shocked that Cooper wasn't that vested in where the media and journalism industry was going. And the interviewer says, this is the future of your job. How could it not interest you? Cooper replies, you're not going to believe my answer, but I'm going to say it anyway. What interests me about my job is being able to go places and step into people's lives. The business side of news. I used to worry about this stuff 20 years ago when I first started. I would stay up at night. Do I have a future? What are my ratings? That was not sustainable for me. I don't like that sort of pressure. For me, the solution was to focus on what I had control over. Getting better at interviews. Improve my writing. Stop saying, "Um. I get all the business stuff. It just doesn't interest me. Do I have a future? I'm 56 years old. How much longer can I be doing this? I don't know. I fully expect someday my services will no longer be required or of interest, and like in a Charlie Brown spelling bee, some voice will go, "womp, womp, womp," and then I will blip off the screen. That is the way of this world, and I've been extraordinarily lucky, so I don't worry about the long-term trajectory. Cooper's focusing on, on what he can control, getting better at what he does, because we don't know what the outcome will be. And oftentimes, whatever the outcome is, whether it's good or bad, or let's say good, the, the accolades and the rewards, they're temporarily, and they won't make us happy. It's the satisfaction of doing one's craft, of being creative. That's what's the most satisfying. And doing something that we can do into our 70s. 80s and 90s, and and discovering what those are so that there is a longevity component. It's the quality of our experiences and our activity, not to gain as many experience points as we can, to get peak experience. There's subtlety that comes from doing one thing consistently long-term and getting better at it. So I'm on a pathless path. I've been for over a decade. I suspect many of you are also. Even if you continue to work, I, I work, but it's been 11 years since I left my investment advisory firm. It'll be 10 years next year since we founded Money for the Rest of Us. Working with my sons on a daily basis has been incredibly rewarding, and with my daughter on a part-time basis. As I look to the future, I'm going to spend our next stag down, Lepreel and I, but what I find the most satisfaction is, is working in creating podcasts. In writing, I I realize how much I have missed writing a book. And I have mentioned I'm working on another book, but I set it aside for 18 months while we worked on Asset Camp. But I've recently picked it up again. And when I envision my life two decades from now, it looks a lot like today. I go out and take a couple walks each day. Maybe I fish, hike, I write, I produce, I do something creative, I interact with family and friends. To me, those are rich, rewarding experiences that I can't use a point system for. And if there is something, pro and I have a list of places we want to go, but we don't know which year because we're going to wait, like Lao Tzu says. And we'll know at the time that this is the year we need to go to this place, and we'll do it. But it isn't so scheduled out. We remain open and flexible and enjoy the journey. That's episode 446. Thanks for listening. I have loved teaching you about investing on this podcast for over nine years. Some topics, though, are just better explained in writing or with a chart. And that's why we have a weekly free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. That's why I spend a couple hours on that newsletter on Wednesday morning as I try to share something that will be helpful to you. If you're not on the list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. We've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.